Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today. We would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. Please visit the Clorox Healthcare website, cloroxhealthcare.com, to learn more about Clorox Healthcare products, keeping the environment safer. Thank you so much for joining us. And right now, we would like to introduce our two guests today, Dr. Katerina Onetto and Dr. Paul Feuerstadt. They are joining us today to discuss the management of C. difficile infection. The future is coming. Welcome to the program, Dr. Onetto and Dr. Feuerstadt. Thank you for having us. Hello. Thank you for having us. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And Dr. Um, Katerina Onetto, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to the, uh, our global uh, listeners. Sure. I am a gastroenterologist in prior practice, affiliated with NYU, and I have an interest in the gut microbiota. And so we also participate in research at the Manhattan Clinical uh, Research. And we're very much interested in C. difficile, but in general in the role of the gut microbiota in GI health. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that introduction. And Dr. Paul, for your staff, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to our global listeners. Oh, thank you. My name is Paul Feuerstadt. I'm an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine and attending gastroenterologist at the PACT Gastroenterology Center. I'm a clinical gastroenterologist seeing patients in the office. My areas of, of interest, in, of course, include the microbiota, uh, microbiome, and interactions with uh, various gastrointestinal disorders, and specifically C. difficile infection. I'm also uh, interested in ischemic bowel disorders as well as eosinophilic disorders, and we do clinical research here at, at our practice as well, and I'm delighted to be here today. We're delighted to have you both here today with us, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to do so. And right now, um, I'm going to start with you, Dr. Uh, Onetto. If you wouldn't mind introducing and um, providing an update from the guidelines on antimicrobial treatments for CDI, and what is the difference from previous updates? Yeah, thank you for that question, Nancy. This is interesting how we've come a long way in treating C. difficile, and so the American College of Gastroenterology has issued new guidelines this year, and those guidelines precisely reflect that, what the progress that has been made. Um, for example, sometimes experts in the field will do certain things, will practice a particular way, but the guidelines wait until there's consensus about something. And a good example of that has been what has happened with metronidazole. That's an antimicrobial that was used, uh, and it was used to be recommended as a first-line treatment for C. difficile, but doctors who were more familiar with the data started using vancomycin and fidaxomycin a long time ago. I'm sure Dr. Foyestad also can't remember the last time he used metronidazole to treat a patient with C. difficile. So now we have guidelines that actually reflect uh, best practices. And uh, in the current guidelines for the treatment of C. difficile, for the first episode of C. difficile, what's recommended is either the use of vancomycin or fidaxomycin. And there's an acknowledgement that they are both similarly efficacious, but that the recurrence rate, meaning the um, frequency in which C. diff comes back, is lower when patients are being treated with fidaxomycin. So this drug that used to be uh, only uh, considered after a patient had multiple recurrences now is considered a potential first-line treatment, fidaxomycin. And then Thank we also so have the treatment of patients who have... Uh, recurrences, and what what is recommended now is that whatever was not used initially is used for the recurrence, meaning if a patient received initially vancomycin for the treatment of C. difficile, when the patient has a recurrence, if they have a recurrence, they're used, they're receiving fidaxomycin. And if the patient received fidaxomycin initially, that they get uh, vancomycin taper, and that's sort of a more prolonged treatment uh, with decreasing doses of vancomycin. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Onetto. And Dr. Feuerstadt, why were the guidelines updated in this way? You know, Nancy, that's a really important question. What, we, what Dr. Onetto just alluded to, the gastroenterological guideline update, the ACG guideline update, chose to include vancomycin and fidaxomycin, basically similarly acknowledging that fidaxomycin is associated with decreased rates of recurrence. What a recurrence is is 
you treat somebody for the infection, and then within a fixed period of time, usually 8 or 12 weeks, unfortunately, the infection or the symptoms of the infection return. And that's a major Achilles heel with C. difficile. So any treatment that reduces rates of recurrence will get a lot of uh, attention and a lot of focus. Fidaxomycin is a novel type of antibiotic because fidaxomycin is a little bit different than vancomycin. Fidaxomycin targets the bacteria C. difficile itself and has a minimal effect on the surrounding environment, the surrounding microbiota or the microorganisms that live in the gut. The reason that that's important is that those microorganisms that live in the gut are actually the thing that gives C. difficile the knockout punch. So the antibiotic minimizes the C. difficile, but that wipeout phase, the phase where we get rid of the infection, is actually from the microbiome or the microbiota. So the question is, what is the data behind fidaxomycin? And that's, that's an important question. And there's been a number of studies. It's been around for a decade. The pivotal trial, the trial that the FDA reviewed for fidaxomycin, was published almost 10 years ago. And at that time, they found a similar effectiveness up front comparing vancomycin and fidaxomycin but the recurrence rates were significantly different. Recurrence rates with vancomycin were 25.3% versus 15.4% with fidaxomycin. So we're really seeing a 10% reduction in rates of recurrence. Well, most people say, okay, that's nice. That was a clinical trial environment. What about in the real world? And the real-world data emanates from a study that came in England by Goldenberg and colleagues, and that study did something really interesting. They said, look, different healthcare systems used fidaxomycin differently after it was released. Some healthcare systems used it up front initially for everybody that got C. difficile. Some used it for recurrent C. difficile, meaning the first recurrence. And they compared historical rates of recurrence before fidaxomycin to rates of recurrence the year after fidaxomycin. And it turns out that the two healthcare systems that used it for initial treatment, their rates of recurrence went from 10.6 to 3.1%, and in another healthcare system from 16.3% historically to 3.1%. So we see that reduction in rates of recurrence because the fidaxomycin preserves the microbiota that's present and allows it the ability to give C. difficile that knockout punch. Now, another study... In, that was published in 2017 by Gary and colleagues in Europe, looked at an alternative usage of fidaxomycin. They looked at inpatients, patients who were hospitalized, who were over 60 with C. difficile, and they gave, the, gave them either fidaxomycin twice daily for five days and then one tablet every other day for day 7 through 25 versus vancomycin four times daily for 10 days. And the results were pretty interesting. Initial response was similar to the original phase three trial, vancomycin and fidaxomycin were similar, but rates of recurrence at 90 days were about 19% for vancomycin versus 6.2% for fidaxomycin. So we're seeing a recurring theme with fidaxomycin with how it's used. It's associated with decreased rates of recurrence, and that decreased rate of recurrence has a much lower burden on the patient population. Patients are feeling better. And it's less challenging for us to treat patients. And this is why fidaxomycin rose through the ranks and got the recommendation that it did in the ACG guideline. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines probably later. Thank you so much, Dr. Forrestat, for the data updates. We really appreciate that. And Dr. Onetto, are there any new treatments added to the guidelines to prevent recurrences? And if so, when should this be used? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So we do have a new treatment that was added to the guidelines, and that's a human monoclonal antibody. It's called Beslotuximab. It's a complicated name, but it's really an antibody that binds one of the toxins that are produced by C. difficile, toxin B. And the idea is to reduce the chance of a recurrence. This is precisely what Dr. Foy said was alluding to. You know, that's, that's a key in C. difficile. It's not just treating the infection, but preventing recurrence. Because unfortunately, patients who have had one recurrence tend to be more likely to have a next recurrence and so on. And the more recurrence the patient has had, the more likely they are to keep having recurrences. So to try to break this cycle, this is one medication that can be used. And it is giving through an infusion. So this is a... Uh, a single weight-based intravenous infusion that's just given one time during the course of the antibiotic. So it's sort of a 
co-intervention. Patient receives the regular antibiotics, but while they're on the antibiotics, they also receive this one-time uh, infusion. Now, there is some benefit in, in reducing the chance of, of recurrence, but it's not a huge benefit. So there's been a question about cost-effectiveness. This is not an inexpensive medication, and so the question becomes, who would benefit the most from receiving it? And patients who have already shown to have recurrent C. difficile are probably good candidates for this, but also sometimes there are patients who are just having an initial episode, and we don't know how likely they are to have a recurrence, but they have some risk factor. Patients who are over the age of 65, for example, maybe those patients should be considered after just an initial episode to, um, to receive uh, bezalotuximab, or patients who are immunocompromised, or patients who had a very severe uh, initial CDI infection. So it, it has to be, I, I think, case by case, and the recommendation is not necessarily a strong recommendation as of yet, but it is something new in our armamentarium. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Onetto. And we have two minutes before we go to break, and we would like to know if you could sum it in two minutes, but where does FMT fit into the treatment paradigm and why? Sure. So FMT is part of the one of the tools that we have used and probably the, the strongest one to try to break the cycle of recurrence because the problem with C. difficile is not that we don't have good antibiotics. We have great antibiotics, but sometimes antibiotics are just, are just not enough. So the problem with C. difficile is not just that there is a, an organism there that maybe shouldn't be there, but also that the patient doesn't have the quote-unquote good microbes, the gut microbiota to protect them against this infection. And that, that's a term, uh, there's a term for that that's called colonization resistance, meaning your own microbes defending you against a CDI. So FMT has, has done this, and it's been used for many years now. And over the years, we have come to see that this is a very effective treatment, um, like all medical interventions, there are some potential downsides, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But what, what we have come to realize is that it's extremely effective and that it probably should be used earlier on. We used to reserve FMT, fecal microbial transplant, a transplant of stool from a healthy donor to the recipient, for patients that were extremely sick, that were always in and out of the hospital. But now we know that if we use it earlier on, we might be saving the patient from a lot of recurrences and, and, and problems down the line. Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Onetto, and thank you, Dr. Feuerstadt, uh, for all the information this segment. And right now, we're going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing the management of a C. difficile infection. The future is coming with our guests, Dr. Katerina Onetto and Dr. Paul Feuerstadt. Please stay tuned. We will be right back after these messages. <music> Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? washed your hands. Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. If you missed the live broadcast of C. diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. You are 
for listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today. Today we have our guests, Dr. Katerina Onetto and Dr. Paul Foyerstadt, joining us to discuss the management of a C. difficile infection, The Future is Coming. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Onetto and Dr. Foyerstadt. Happy to be here. Wonderful. Thank you, uh, Dr. Foyer, thank you Dr. Onetto. Um, right now, um, I'm going to ask Dr. Foyerstadt to, if he wouldn't mind, if you wouldn't mind outlining the guideline recommendations, um, and if you wouldn't mind discussing the um, previous guidelines with our global listeners. Nancy, that's an important question. In, in the previous segment, we spoke about the American College of Gastroenterology guidelines. But recently also, the Infectious Disease Society of America, Society of Healthcare Epidemiologists of America, also updated their guidelines. And they chose a different path. As opposed to the gastroenterological guidelines, the infectious disease guidelines said vancomycin and fidaxomycin are not equal. They actually used the term preferred for fidaxomycin for initial infection and vancomycin as an alternative. And then they said, if nothing else is available, consider metronidazole. So that's a significant difference between the guidelines. And for first recurrence, again, they said fidaxomycin, either dose 200 milligrams twice daily for 10 days, or according to the algorithm that we spoke about the data for in the previous segment, 200 milligrams twice daily for five days, and then one tablet every other day for days 7 through 25, that is preferred for first recurrence. An alternative is vancomycin in a tapered and or pulsed fashion, a prolonged dosing of vancomycin where you slowly decrease the dose. And then if metronidazole was used initially, shouldn't be used in the first recurrence, but one could consider 10 days of vancomycin. For the second recurrence, the third episode, they said use whatever you haven't used. Fidaxomycin, vancomycin in a tapered and or pulsed fashion, a standard vancomycin course of 10 days followed by a different antibiotic, rifaximin, for 20 days. And finally, within that second recurrence, they also added fecal microbiota transplantation, stating that from that point and beyond, the addition of those microbes through a fecal microbiota transplant, the supplementation, can help reduce rates of recurrence. Importantly, within those guidelines also, bezlotuximab was added, and it was added for patients with first recurrence and second recurrence to be given in addition to an antimicrobial, usually within the first week of therapy. And the importance of both guideline updates is that we're really modernizing our care. One of the problems with C. difficile is that we're not only seeing more of it, but we're seeing more refractory disease. In fact, one study found that over the course of about 12 years, there was an increase in the incidence, the number of patients that have C. difficile, about 43%, but there was an increase in the number of multiple recurrent episodes of C. difficile, the patients that get this again and again and again, of about 189%. So this is why the guidelines have chosen to focus on tools that will decrease rates of recurrence, fidaxomycin being one of them, bezlotuximab being one of them, and optimized therapy being the most important. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Foyerstad. And um, would you mind explaining what is the importance of these guidelines updates to clinical practice? You know, the most clinically relevant information that we've discussed focuses on that those rates of recurrence. So the applicability is really for people to realize that we have more data available, and with more data available, we can apply that information to the clinical practice world with things like the fidaxomycin and bezlotuximab and fecal microbiota transplantation. Optimizing the therapy, reducing rates of recurrence, therefore patients have an easier experience and the healthcare system is improved. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing all that information. And Dr. Onetto, what are microbiota-based live biotherapeutics and how does this treatment work in patients with a C. difficile infection? 
Right. So microbiota-based life um, biotherapeutic is an intervention that doesn't that targets a different part of this problem with C. difficile. Uh, we know that C. difficile is different from other infections. The very presence of C. difficile is not enough to give somebody C. difficile colitis. Uh, for example, many people are colonized. In the general public, about 4 to 15% of people are colonized. That um, rate of colonization is even higher in people who are hospitalized or in long-term facilities. But most people don't develop C. diff colitis. And why is that? Because of something that we talked about before, colonization resistance. But the problem with colonization resistance is that it can be undermined sometimes. So say, for example, a patient takes antibiotics. Well, then that colonization resistance is undermined and there's a window of vulnerability after taking those antibiotics for something else. Say a patient had bronchitis or a UTI or something like that. They receive antibiotics for something else and all of a sudden their own microbes are unable to defend them against C. difficile. And uh, this can get worse, of course, if the patient gets uh, further recurrences with C. difficile, particularly if antibiotics are used to treat it. Some antibiotics are narrower in their spectrum than others, so they can cause different degrees of damage. But regardless, the more recurrences of what patient has of C. difficile, the, the worse their microbiota is often in terms of trying to defend them, the, the less able their own microbiota is. So the idea behind live biotherapeutics is to re- restore that colonization resistance, to bring back those good microbes to prevent a C. diff from recurring. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Onetto. And Dr. Feuerstadt, what is the evidence to support usage of fecal microbiota transplantation in patients with a C. difficile infection? Nancy, what's nice about the data for fecal transplant in patients with C. difficile infection is that this is really the landmark disease or infection that we understand the most about. We understand that there's a deficiency of certain types of microorganisms, specifically things called bacteroidetes and formicides. And by replacing them in those that are deficient, we reduce rates of recurrence. Well, that's nice and all well and great theoretically. But as clinicians, it's important that we see data that those theoretical concepts come to life and actually work. And the beauty of this is just how effective this potentially could be. There have been a number of different studies over the last eight or so years, starting with the first prospective, randomized, controlled trial considering patients with recurrency difficile. It was done overseas in, in Europe, and what they found was the effectiveness of fecal transplant in these patients was 81.3%. And that was statistically significantly better than those that just received vancomycin. So that really put fecal transplant on the map. And following that, there were quite a few different studies that had somewhat heterogeneous designs, variable designs. And there was a meta-analysis or an analysis that put a number of those studies together in 2017 that showed a potential effectiveness of fecal transplant of 92%. That was pretty impressive. But as we go through the literature and as we start to look at the structure of studies, it's best that we look at studies that have two arms, an intervention, such as fecal transplant, and a control, either a placebo or vancomycin or something else. Those are better structured studies, and those better structured studies give us a better idea of really how effective a treatment might be. And that was done by Racine Tariq, Sihil Khanna and Daryl Pardee in a publication in 2019 where they looked at 13 studies and 610 total patients and they found an effectiveness of fecal transplant of about 67.7% in studies that were randomized controlled trials, 76.1% in all the trials that they included. So still an excellent efficacy and a very effective treatment, but a more realistic number of what we're looking at for the efficacy of fecal transplant. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Feuerstadt, for sharing all that information. And we're three minutes before we go to a commercial break. And Dr. Onetto, this seems like a very promising therapy. And would you mind sharing how safe is this treatment with our listeners? 
Sure. So it's it's a very promising therapy, but like in everything in medicine, and this is no exception, there are sometimes bad outcomes. So there are there is some risk to FMT to a fecal microbiota transplant, at least in the way that we've been performing it over the years. So there have been some cases, and this um, there were some reports, for example, in the New England Journal of Medicine of uh, patients developing bacteremia, so E. coli bacteremia from a multi-drug resistant. Uh, type, you know, the type of bacterium that's not very susceptible to antibiotics after an FMT. Uh, there were also some reports last year uh, from Open Biome, the, the biggest stool bank in the country, where some patients um, were found to have Shiga toxin producing E. coli and an infection due to that. So I think that I don't want to say that this is an unsafe uh, treatment in the sense that I'm sure uh, FMT has saved many lives and many people from having surgery, colectomy, and all sorts of bad outcomes. So generally speaking, we consider FMT to be a safe procedure, but uh, what one has to consider is that we really want uh, a defined culture therapeutic microbial mixture not just stool, but to know specifically what microbes are there and what microbes are not there to avoid giving pathogen to a patient who is receiving the FMT. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Onetto, for sharing that. And Dr. Forrestat, before we go to break, are there any weaknesses with with the data that you have been discussing? Nancy, you know, it's important. I think Dr. Onetto gave a nice overview of the safety of FMT. FMT is safe. Um, what we're learning, though, is that we have to evolve with FMT, and we have to understand what we're giving beforehand, and that involves the screening process. And the screening process is becoming more and more universalized to make this safer and safer, but the safety has been reinforced uh, many, many times. With regards to the data that I quoted before, the, the weakness of it is heterogeneity. It's exactly what we were talking about, which is different centers use different screening procedures and also use different processes to create the product that they were using to transplant. Well, with variability with product formulation and the donors that are donating and the screening process for the donors and the actual filtration and conservation methods, it's much less predictable of the safety and efficacy than, say, something that has a more universalized process like a pharmaceutical product. And that's really an important concept as we sort of look into the future and we think about the future of microbiota-based live biotherapeutics or fecal microbiota transplantation. Exactly. Thank you so much, Dr. Foyerstadt, for that information. And thank you, Dr. Katerina Onetto. And at this time, we are going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing the management of a C. difficile infection. The future is coming with our guests, Dr. Katerina Onetto and Dr. Paul Foyerstadt. Please stay tuned. We will be right back after these messages. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. To help support the C. diff foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate, or call toll-free 1-844-4-C-DIFF. That's 1-844-367-2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. If you missed the live broadcast of C. diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. 
You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today with our guests, Dr. Katerina Onetto and Dr. Paul Foyerstadt. They join us today to discuss the management of a C. difficile infection. The future is coming. And welcome back to the program, Dr. Ronetto and Dr. Foyerstadt. Great to be here. Thank you, Wonderful. Nancy. Oh, we're so happy to have you both here today. Can't tell you how excited we are. And thank you so much for taking time to share all of this information that's so important to both clinicians and our, all our global listeners. And Dr. Ronetto, I'm going to ask you your first uh, question is, so where do we go from here? <laughs> that's very, a very open-ended question, but yes, that's exactly right. So we know about the efficacy of this approach of using FMT, of a microbiome modification, and improving the person's gut microbiota. We know that that works. We know there's some small safety concerns, and I don't want to minimize that, but this caveman approach, and no offense to a caveman, but this approach of transplanting, full stool from one healthy donor to the recipient may not be the best uh, course of action now that we have other options. So what we want is to have a product that's processed in such a way that they're efficacious but also free from pathogens. And that's how uh, pharmaceutical uh, products have come into into this, in the, this whole sphere. And there are really two ways of approaching this. One is what's called broad consortium. So a product that contains all the different microbes that are contained in normal stool. It's a whole ecosystem. It's like transplanting a jungle into a different area uh, versus a narrow consortium that only includes the organisms that are considered to be good, that are considered to be helpful. Uh, that's, uh, it's a pickier approach, but they, they both seem likely to be helpful, and we'll go over that uh, data in a little bit. But essentially what we want is to have safety, we want efficacy, but we also have, we want to have good data. We want rigid, well-performed uh, clinical trials because at the end of all this, we want to be able to tell our patients that we have a product that's predictable, that in, both in its efficacy and in, in its safety, just like other medications that we give to our patients in regular clinical practice. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more, Dr. Onetto. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Dr. Foyerstadt, let's start with RBX2660. Um, Can you tell us more about this product and update us on any data available to date? Nancy, RBX2660 is a a fascinating product. It's a full, broad consortium. So it includes uh, all the microorganisms, uh, from the donor that are not pathogenic. And it is produced by taking about 50 grams of stool and mixing it with 150 milliliters of fluid, and it is instilled rectally. So it's given from below. And there are two pivotal trials that have, that have included encouraging, very encouraging data for this product, although there have been over 1,000 patients enrolled in clinical trials around this product. So there's been a lot of patients who have been participated in clinical trials showing its very predictable safety and efficacy. The two pivotal trials are the Phase two study, which is a study that was published a couple of years ago where patients with recurrent C. difficile were all given a standard of care antimicrobial and were randomized to either receive two placebos one week apart a dose of RBX2660 followed by a placebo a week later, or two doses of RBX2660, 2660, separated by a week, all following that standard of care antimicrobial. And the results were pretty interesting. The group that received a placebo had about a 45% effectiveness. The group that received two doses of RBX2660 had a 61% effectiveness, whereas the group that received a single dose of RBX2660 had an effectiveness of 67%, a statistical significantly different from the placebo. And any exposure to RBX2660 had an efficacy of 64%. So as a result of this, it was encouraging that a single dose of RBX2660 following the standard of care antimicrobial would be an effective and safe tool. So 
the company that oversees this product sat down with the FDA and designed a phase three trial that had the same methods, same diagnostic methods, similar outcomes, same inclusion and exclusion criteria. And they presented their data for the phase three trial at Digestive Disease Week in May of 2021. What they did, though, was since the trials were similar and the number of patients included in the trials were small for pharmaceutical trials, sizable for fecal transplant trials, but small in general, you can leverage the data from one trial into the other, meaning plainly you can combine the two trials. If the signals, meaning the results, were similar in the placebo arm and in the intervention arm, RBX2660, and in fact it was, the effectiveness of RBX2660 across the two trials was 70.4% versus 58.1% in the placebo arm. This showed a significant statistical difference between the intervention and the control, and therefore, this product has really exciting data to support it. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Feuerstadt, for introducing that product and explaining its background and history and where we're going with this. And Dr. Onetto, would you mind taking a moment and describing SCR 109 and advise of their clinical trials? Sure. So SCR109 is an oral microbiome therapeutic that's composed of live purified firmicute spores. So it's narrower. Um, remember when we were talking about broad consortium versus narrow consortium, and this would fall into the latter category. Um, they, had, they went through a phase two, uh, phase two trials, uh, and it was not successful. It could not prove superiority versus uh, placebo. And the question became why? And after, after that um, very disappointing, those very disappointing results, uh, they came to understand that the problem was the, in the patients that they were picking. So when it comes to diagnosing C. difficile, it's not really super simple. It's not like having one test for HIV that's either positive or negative. Uh, when diagnosing C. difficile, we look at the patient's symptoms. We also look at something that's called a PCR. That's a very sensitive test. And we also sometimes do a test in the stool that picks up the toxin itself that's produced by C. difficile. And Apparently, what happens during the phase two trials and the reason that they were not successful in demonstrating the superiority of their product against placebo was that the testing was picking up patients who didn't really have C. difficile colitis but were just colonized. And that's a big problem because if you're picking patients who don't actually have the condition that you're trying to treat, that will undermine the validity of all the results. And also, testing matter not just in terms of picking patients, what's called the entry population, but in terms of diagnosing recurrence. So there were some methodological problems, and also there were some questions about dosing. Was the dose enough to actually make a difference uh, between placebo and the patients on the SER109 group? But in the phase three um, uh, phase, um, the results were very encouraging. So this was, again, a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. The patients that were enrolled had had three or more episodes of CDI, and they were this time diagnosed by toxin testing. And they were treated either with SER109 or with placebo. And SER109, different from the product that was that, that uh, Dr. Forrester was just talking about, is administered orally. So the patients would receive four capsules a day for three consecutive days, and then there were, this was done after standard of care treatment. So in general, when we're thinking about uh, these treatments, FMT and these pharmaceutical products, what's, what's done right now is that patients receive the standard of care treatment, the standard of care antibiotics, vancomycin or fidaxomycin, and at the end of that treatment is when we want to restore the gut microbiota. So the primary endpoint was superiority, meaning that SER109 was better than placebo in reducing the CDI recurrence rates. And that primary endpoint was actually met. And it was quite significant, the difference between placebo, the placebo group and the group receiving the active product. So the recurrence rates in the SER109 group um, were 19.4, and in the placebo group, it was 39.8. So quite a, a significant difference there. 
And this was found regardless of age and even regardless of the antibiotics that the patients had previously received. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Onetto, for describing the SER-109 and the clinical trials that went through and, and where it's going from today forward. And Dr. Feuerstadt, uh, before we go to break, are there any other products on the horizon that our global listeners should keep on their radar? Yes, Nancy. There is one other product that, that uh, presents Phase two data, and this is a product called CP101, and this is an oral capsule formulation. It's broad consortium, so it includes uh, a broad group of microorganisms. It's dosed in a single day. And its phase two data included similar structure to the other studies. Everyone got standard of care, and then following the standard of care, they were either randomized to placebo or CP101 in the case of this trial. And they looked and they found the efficacy of this product to be about 74.5% versus 61.5% in the placebo arm. That was a statistically significant difference, and this was a a well-run study, multi-center, randomized, double-blinded, as I stated, placebo-controlled. So this is a product that will probably enter phase three trials, and in the next couple of years, hopefully we'll see the data from those phase three trials to better understand um, where this might fit. Importantly, across all of these trials, there was significant safety signals. There were no serious adverse events, uh, and these patients who did receive active treatment really were just as safe as the placebo arm, really speaking to the safety of of, uh, this procedure and this, this transplant methodology. Thank you so much, Dr. Feuerstadt, for introducing this additional product on the horizon with our uh, to our global listeners. And at this time, we're going to pause for a commercial break. And when we return, we will continue discussing the management of C. difficile infection. The future is coming with our guests, Dr. Katerina Onetto and Dr. Paul Feuerstadt. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. <music> Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. If you missed the live broadcast of C. diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. To help support the C. diff foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate, or call toll-free 1-844-4-C-DIFF. That's 1-844-367-2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today with our guest, Dr. Katerina Onetto and Dr. Paul Feuerstadt, who join us today to discuss the management of a C. difficile infection. The future is coming. 
And I, at this time, I'd like to welcome back our guest, uh, Dr. Katerina and Dr. Uh, Dr. Katerina Onetto and Dr. Foyerstadt. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Nancy, for having us. Oh, thank you so much for being here. And Dr. Onetto, before we went to commercial, um, you were discussing the uh, new products and the SCR109, and it sounds like there are quite a few different products out there. Can you contextualize what these potential pharmaceutical products can mean to the general practicing clinicians and for patients? Yes. So that this is going to be so interesting for us to observe after all these years of doing things a completely different way, the old-fashioned type of fecal transplant, where we have these products available, and hopefully this will happen, I guess, in the near future nowadays. I'm very hesitant to predict the future. But assuming that the efficacy and the safety of these products are comparable, and we won't really know because we won't have a head-to-head trial, but assuming that they're comparable, I think there are going to be a number of factors that uh, practicing doctors will have to take into consideration. There's always patient, the, 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 the doctor's own comfort level, but also the patient preference. So those are things that will come into play. You know, one of these medications administered via enema, the other one is administered via capsules. Also, I think logistics will play a role. It's not the same to take a capsule and to receive an enema that has to be done under the supervision of um, a healthcare provider. And then there's going to be the issue of cost, and we just don't know how all these things will play out in the future, but we're really happy to see that we're going to have a lot more options. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that information. And Dr. Feuerstadt, um, before we close the program today, would you like to share any closing comments or and also share the key points that you'd like the global listeners to take away with them today? You know, Nancy, we've covered a lot of information today. I think that there's a number of, of really exciting things that are happening in the space of C. difficile. The first are the updated guidelines, the IESA, the IDSA and SHEA guidelines, the infectious disease guidelines, the gastroenterological guidelines have really pushed fidaxomycin upwards in the treatment algorithm. The infectious disease side stating fidaxomycin is preferred, the gastroenterological saying similar between vancomycin and fidaxomycin, but fidaxomycin is associated with decreased rates of recurrence. I think that that's really essential because there's just this focus on decreasing rates of recurrence. We're seeing more and more recurrent disease that's much more challenging to treat. So things like bezlotuximab, that one-time infusion given in addition to the antimicrobial, also can play a key role as we step forward and we understand the, the treatments of C. difficile better and also understanding the two sides of treatment. One is the antimicrobial side and the other is the microbiota. And we spoke extensively about the microbiota. And I'm going to leave it to Dr. Onetto to kind of summarize that portion of what we spoke about today. Absolutely. So we have a lot of options. The antibiotic aspect of things has improved. The gut microbiota, um, it's, it's, become much, it's become much more clear how important it is and that we can now target it more specifically. So that's, I'm very optimistic about it. I also think that um, patients sometimes get treated for C. difficile and do, they do have symptoms after being treated and they're also afraid of having a recurrence. And we, we understand that and through the C. difficile foundation, through the C. diff foundation, we have come to know a lot of these patients who actually call uh, C. diff foundation global support. And we have a conversation once a month, Dr. Forrest and myself, the fourth uh, Monday of the month. And we address all sorts of concerns, not just from patients who have an active infection, but from patients who have residual symptoms sometimes or just have concerns or want to know how to um, better take care of themselves and also their families after having had this infection. Thank you so much, Dr. Feuerstadt and Dr. Onetto. And we still have uh, a few minutes left before we close the program. And Dr. Onetto, um, can you explain to our patients on how they can prevent a C. difficile infection in the future? Oh, that's a very difficult question, Nancy, but I will, I'll do my best. When patients have had C. difficile before, we consider them at a higher risk for having another recurrence. So when they do receive antibiotics for a different indication, 
that has nothing to do with C. difficile, otitis, bronchitis, a urinary tract infection, sometimes we want to protect them by using, at the same time, vancomycin. So the patient will be taking, say, ciprofloxacin or amoxicillin or something like that. And while they're on the treatment, we want to try to protect them from having a recurrence by using uh, prophylactic uh, vancomycin. That's not a universal practice, but that's something that I do in my practice, particularly when I'm worried about a recurrence. Okay, wonderful. And Dr. Forrestad, uh, you also practice similarly to Dr. Onetto with regards to vancomycin prophylaxis? Yes. Uh, you know, I think um, the usage of vancomycin prophylaxis was previously, I'll say, minorly controversial because vancomycin not only treats C. difficile, but it also alters that microbiota and creating an environment that slightly increases risk of recurrence. So the question is, well, if you have somebody who doesn't have C. difficile but is receiving an antibiotic for another indication, should we give the vancomycin to prevent it? And the short answer is now the data is fairly convincing to say yes. We typically give it in a lower dose and for the duration of that other antimicrobial for another indication. And I found it personally to be very, very effective. But the literature has borne out on this, and the gastroenterological guidelines have also recommended this. So this is something that patients should think about in the future to know that there are things we could potentially do to prevent this. Okay, wonderful. Well, Dr. Onetto and Dr. Forrestat from the C. Diff Foundation and myself, we thank you so much for joining us today on C. Diff Spores and more, and we're so grateful for all the work that you do and your dedication in the C. diff community and, and also the gastroenterology. And at this time, the members of the C. diff Foundation would like to thank Ferring Pharmaceuticals for being the global sponsor, Ceres Therapeutics for being the diamond sponsor, Pfizer for being the gold sponsor, Acurex Pharmaceuticals and Merck for being the silver sponsors of this year's fifth annual global C. diff awareness walks taking place on September 25th. For more information, please visit the C. diff Foundation's website, cdifffoundation.org and November 4th and 5th, 2021 is the 9th Annual International CDIF Conference and Health Expo 100% live online two-day event. Registration is complimentary this year and to learn more about this event, please visit cdifffoundation.org Our thanks to Siri Therapeutics for being the diamond sponsor, Faring Pharmaceuticals for being the platinum sponsor, Acurex Pharmaceuticals for being the audio sponsor and all the gold, silver, and bronze sponsors of this year's conference, making it possible. We look forward to seeing you online in November. To learn more about clinical trials focused on C. diff infections and recurrent C. diff infections, prevention and treatments, please visit the C. diff Foundation's website, along with the dedicated clinical trial website, which is cdiffclinicaltrials.com. Help them to help you to help others. We send out our get well wishes to all patients being treated for and recovering from a C. diff infection and the many wellness draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala. With our reminder, none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health, continued healing, and a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. 